Welcome to Something to Think About. My name is Jack and I am a follower of God's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And I would like to share with you something uh, to think about that I came across in the Gospel according to Luke and in Luke chapter 13. And perhaps you bear with me as I just read through this text. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told him this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for thee for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. There is a, a lovely hymn that we sing on a Sunday morning sometimes at our worship services. And it's called Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. It's a very comforting song. Some very comforting thoughts expressed in its words. But softly and tenderly is not the way that Jesus is calling in this text. This time it is loudly and pointedly. As you'll probably notice, the passage divides into two parts. Verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 9. And we'll treat them in sequence, but we will see that they are really closely related to one another. Luke refers to two events that were probably very familiar to his original audience. The details of these events have unfortunately been lost to time, for Luke is our only source of information about these tragedies. The grisly mention of Pilate's mingling the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices appears to refer to a massacre of a group of Galilean pilgrims in Jerusalem. The account that we have in Luke does not reveal why Pilate slaughtered these people. But the deed nevertheless corresponds with what other historical writings tell us about Pilate's penchant for brutality. 
The verse offers an ominous characterization of the Roman governor in advance of the appearance in Jesus' trial. Perhaps Jesus refers to a tower in the wall around Jerusalem when he speaks of the Tower of Siloam. What appears to have happened here is that a structure collapsed without warning and crushed 18 hapless uh, uh, inhabitants of, of Jerusalem. So what is the, the lesson we can take from this about what is happening when bad things happen to unsuspecting people? Well, Jesus seizes on two calamities that may have been subjects of recent conversation around uh, a particular meeting place. One happened in an instance, the other sanctioned terror. One was a random accident and the other was something premeditated. Both of these events saw people snuffed out, as it were, with little warning and for no clearly apparent reason. Both kinds of events lead the rest of us to realise just how precarious our existence is. Jesus implies that his victims did nothing wrong, nothing that caused their demise. He characterises life as just as capricious as it is to uh, nasty, uh, brutish uh, and short-tempered uh, Roman governors or just something that happens, unfortunately, to some people. Although these events might allow Jesus an opportunity to defend God against charges of mismanaging the universe, he doesn't go down that route at all. Jesus only implies that we must not equate tragedy with divine punishment. Sin does not make atrocities come. They just come. But we learn that life's fragility gives this story some urgency. And Jesus turns attention away from the disasters and away from the victims. And why? He distracts us from spending time asking the why questions. And he addresses those of us who thus far have survived hazards of the universe and the dangers of living in human society. But we should not mistake our good fortune as evidence of God's special blessing. What Jesus wants to talk about in this passage is repentance. And the need for repentance is a universal condition. And it's shared by random victims of tragedies and the rest of us who go about our lives knowing that they could very quickly be cut short.
When Jesus says twice, unless you repent, you will all perish like the others did. He's not promising that the, the godless of this world would be struck down by perhaps an asteroid or some great disaster. He refers to death as an end of time experience, a destruction not just of one's life, but of one's soul. He emphasizes the suddenness with which death can come. Just as pilots and the tower's victims did not enjoy the luxury of choosing the time of their demise, likewise, the unrepentant will suddenly find they have delayed too long and lost themselves. Now, the charge may be made that Jesus is exploiting tragedy to score some theological points. Well, it certainly looks as though he capitalises on the memory of recent horrors to stress the suddenness of death and the unpredictability of life. We are justly made aware by the fear, uh, by the fear-mongering and unashamed preachers who whip up uh, all sorts of theories after every natural and unnatural disaster. But notice that Jesus' approach follows a slightly different path. He does not promise freedom from calamity, but urges his hearers against false self-assurances. If life's fragile demands, or if life's fragility, rather, demands urgency, that urgency shows that life itself has carved out opportunity for us to seize God's graciousness, as the following parable suggests to us. In verses 6 through 9 of the text that we read, Jesus' short parable about a fig tree speaks of imminent judgment. Uh, and I'm reminded of... Uh, the words of John the Baptizer in chapter 3 of Luke, when he says, Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The parable reinforces ideas from the first half of our passage. A cultivated yet unproductive tree may continue to live even without bearing fruit, only because it has been granted the additional time to do what it is supposed to do. Unless it bears or begins to bear fruit, and this is an image of repentance, again according to John the Baptizer in chapter 3, the result will be its just and swift destruction. Like Jesus' earlier words in response to the recent tragedies, the parable warns us against false reassurance. Just because you have not 
been cut down. Do not presume that you are bearing fruit. The tone of the parable emphasizes that patience and mercy temporarily keep judgment at bay. The role of the gardener offers a crucial characterization, characterization of this patience and mercy. The tree has not been left to its own devices. Everything possible is being done to get it to act as it should. Correspondingly, God does not leave people, you and I, to our own resources, but that he continually encourages our repentance. We don't need to think up allegories to understand this parable. Identifying the vineyard owner as God, the gardener as Jesus, and the tree as whoever it is, we would hurry up and repent, strips the parable uh, of its force. And, and sometimes allegories built around these parables produce nothing more than theological confusion. Nowhere else does Luke imply that Jesus pacifies a God who is perhaps too keen to clean house. Instead, the parable's power comes through its suspense, the suspense that it generates. Will the fruit emerge in time to thwart the axe? How will this season of second chances play itself out? How do the gardener's efforts make the tree's existence a state of grace and opportunity? We can sum up all of these questions with one word. Repent. That's what Jesus uses as a summary to all that he is saying. Repent. But repentance becomes less interesting when people mistake it to mean moral uprightness, expressions of regret, or, as it's often been described, a 180-degree turnaround. Rather, here and many other places in the Bible, it refers to a changed mind, to a new way of seeing things, to being persuaded to adopt a different perspective. In both of the books written by Luke, his Gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles, repentance also has moral applications, but it cannot and should not be reduced to a question of ethics. Sometimes it is presented as something given or accomplished by God. And you just have to read the accounts in Acts chapter 5, verse 31 and Acts chapter 11. It can be more about being found rather about finding yourself. Uh, and for more explanation on that, read what Luke says in chapter 15 of his gospel. 
Repentance refers to an entirely reorientated self, to a new consciousness of one's shortcomings and of one's dire circumstances. Of course, this has moral consequences on fruits and deeds consistent with repentance. We only have to look again at Luke 3 and Acts chapter 26. But morality is not the horse that pulls the cart. In this passage, the need for repentance is assumed, and so it takes a, a back seat in emphasis to the urgency of Jesus' call. Tragedy and hardship have their ways of nudging people toward God. But these verses suggest that tragedy and hardship come so suddenly that they often mark the end, not the beginning, of our opportunities to live lives inclined toward God. Don't let the introspective or the pensive nature uh, that is so often uh, uh, taken from these parables that Luke records. Don't let that take your attention away from the, the importance of the position that we all now find ourselves in. Jesus warns about judgment and about repentance are perhaps a little bit disturbing. One might even say scary. Yet they depict human life as a gift, albeit a very fragile gift. The vulnerable creatures that we are, we can presume little and do little to preserve ourselves. But the Christian outlook on repentance has an arc that moves towards joy and it finds grace experienced within the awful precariousness and the strange beauty of our fleeting existence. For people of faith, wars and catastrophes raise all sorts of questions that deserve discussion. And sometimes these questions drive us to mourn and to lament. But the movement of this particular text, however, will focus primarily on the fact that tragedies arrest our attention. They shake us out of the complacencies or the stupor that we use to get through ordinary life. They impress upon us better than any preacher's words the perils of our existence. But tragedies also lead many of us who observe such events at a distance, though word of mouth and round-the-clock uh, news coverage via television or social media, we are driven to protect ourselves with perhaps rationalizations and too often false assurances. 
do we build our lives upon these rationalizations that allow us to get through the day feeling blessed and safe and able to presume upon a better future? A better future than that of victims of war and catastrophes? Or do we build our lives on the knowledge that God's judgment is certain? Do we build them on the efforts that God, like the parable's gardener, undertakes to prepare us for that judgment? God transforms us through grace, a grace that calls us to be generous with ourselves and with those still trapped under the weight of tragedies of this world and this life, of poverty, of want, of devastations of all kinds. We are called to share in his work of caring for his creation and his created people. But first of all, he calls us, as Jesus did, to repent. Thank you for watching this programme. We trust something has been said that will be of use to you. And if you have any questions or comments, we would like to hear from you. Until the next time, goodbye.